finest hymns ever written. Yeah. Great, great words. Uh, and just hearing it resonating around the room in the round like this was uh, oh, a powerful experience. Well, Happy New Year. Uh, good, to, good to be back with you after a, a few weeks uh, few weeks off and uh, hope you enjoyed uh, your times with uh, friends and family over the holiday season uh, as we begin this year together. I'm going to start this year and I'm going to begin uh, with, with a series of First Thessalonians that, that I've called uh, Solid and Steady. And that will become evident in a few moments as we, as we begin this morning. But First Thessalonians was one of the earliest of Paul's letters. A lot of debate, uh, was it Galatians or 1 Thessalonians? Both were very, very early. But more importantly to us today is it may be among the least familiar of Paul's letters. My guess is most of you could not walk your way through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And it's, it's for whatever reason, it's one of the letters that have just kind of, kind of fallen off the table that we've not spent a lot of time with. Um, it was written around 50 AD. It was written at a very important time. The church was very young. Uh, those of you who have read and understand the book of Acts, the church began in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And by the time Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, the church was maybe 17 years old. So this is a very early, young time in the life of the church, and, and yet its influence was dramatic. It was, it was spreading like a wildfire. And the story of, of, of the Thessalonian Christians may be one of the most encouraging pictures of a contagious Christianity. And it was just a wildfire. And then you'll see that play out in the weeks, weeks to come, and it's uh, going to be very timely for us today, and I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But where Paul begins, and we're going to take a look at some background today, in verse, verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. This morning what I'm going to do is we're going to go back and take a look at the story behind who the Thessalonians were. And it will become essential as we move through this passage in the months to come, that you understand the context in which this was written. Because if we miss the context, we'll not appreciate uh, the richness of what Paul is, is writing. And the story is told in Acts 17. And, and so I'm going to go back, and this morning we're going to kind of walk our way through a portion of Acts 17, and then I'll draw some, some insight from it as we kind of prepare when Paul and his companions uh, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyanna, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Acts, uh, it records three journeys that were taken by Paul out of Jerusalem to share the story of Jesus, the gospel, and to establish new churches. And this story is during the second of those journeys. And it was significant because it marked the spread of Christianity into Western Europe beyond those who were Jews. And that's going to be a really critical piece. Now I'm going to put up a map for just a moment of, of, the, uh, that was, of the time that this was taking place, just to give you some perspective of what was going on 
And so down here is where the church was born in Jerusalem. And a large part of those early years hovered around here. If you know the story of the book of Acts, Paul began moving up into this region up here, uh, modern-day Turkey. And, and he reached a place over here where he had a, a defining moment. The story is told in Acts 16. Uh, Paul had every intent of going back east and, and spending his time in this area, but in a very dramatic moment, the Spirit of God drew him west. And again, you can read that story in Acts 16. And, and he, he began in Philippi, you see Philippi and, and Thessalonica up here, and this began to open up this, this movement of the gospel into, into Western Europe. Now Thessalonica as a city, and again, be patient with some of the background because it will, it will, it will ring true in the weeks to come. Econ uh, uh, Thessalonica was an economically and culturally robust city. Its, its people were influential, they were entrepreneurial, they were successful. They were burgeoning. A lot of the trade routes came through Thessalonica. And the church that Paul planted there took on the personality of the city where it was located. And so as we begin looking at these people and who they were as followers of Jesus, they were marked by determination and creativity uh, entrepreneurialism, courage, and zeal, and resilience. That's what defined them as people. They took on the, the very personality of the world that they had grown up in. And what they did was they modeled an authentic Christianity that was solid and steady. Uh, and so not surprising, their influence was, was, was substantial. Let's go back to the story, verse 2. So as was his custom, so Paul made his way down, or over to, to Thessalonica. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbaths, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Now, it's reasonable to believe that Paul was actually with them longer than the three Sabbaths mentioned here. Uh, when, we, when we take a look at other places in the New Testament, we know that Paul was there long enough that he needed to work for his support. And the Philippians had, had sent him financial support on numerous occasions. So most New Testament scholars actually placed Paul in Thessalonica for six to nine months. The three Sabbaths represented where he started. And so what, what's being described by Luke is he began there and his initial, his initial push was in the synagogue where he was reasoning with people from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and that Jesus was the Messiah. They were spirited conversations, robust conversations, a lot of discussion and debate pointing people to the Old Testament scriptures and to Jesus as the promised Messiah. And, and the, the, the picture you get from the Greek language is that Paul was engaging with people's questions and their doubts, their apprehensions about Jesus. This, this wasn't a one-sided conversation. This was a very robust dialogue that was going on. About Jesus and who Jesus was and what his death and resurrection meant. Let's go on. And so there was a response. 
Some of the Jews were persuaded in joining Paul and Silas. As did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Pause here. And so as people began to respond to this, this conversation around Jesus, there were some Jews that, that were present in Thessalonica that responded. But Luke wants us to see that there was a large number of Greeks, spiritually inclined Gentiles. They probably had some awareness of the Old Testament, but they, they were Gentiles, they weren't Jewish. And, and he also identifies quite a few prominent women. These were successful women who were business leaders and influencers in their city. And, and, and so Luke is making a very pointed statement that men and women from different ethnic, economic, and social standing were believing in Jesus. And that their influence greatly expanded because of their diversity and the range of which they were meeting people. Uh, verse, verse 7 in Acts uh, 17, or and, and, and go, if you go back, I will look at this next week. 1 Thessalonians 1 says, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The whole region was impacted by them. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. There was something going on in the dynamic of this diversity that ignited the gospel in that part of the world. And this became an early pivot point for the gospel and a pivot point for the church as it began reaching beyond its Jewish roots and culture, a pivot point for Paul's ministry as they ventured into uncharted territory, not just geographically. This wasn't just about a move into Western Europe. This was about a move into a, a wider scope of cultural diversity. And something ignited. It was around this time that Paul wrote in another letter, the letter of Galatians. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all one in Jesus Christ. Now, you and I read those words somewhat passively. We have no idea the firestorm those words ignited. You see, so, such a, such a robust diversity that the gospel was bringing sent shockwaves to the Jewish community. See, prior to this point, and arguably for the first 17 years of the church, the, the, the context, the community was pretty homogeneous. They had come out of similar backgrounds, similar roots. They spoke similar language. They knew similar stories. It was, it was very much the same. And as Paul began to pivot and move down into to Greece, the diversity just ignited an incredible amount of tension. And as if you know your New Testament, you know, it placed Paul right in the center of controversy and conflict for the rest of his life. As churches began wrestling and finding their way with the diversity. And, and one of the things, in a, in a very practical way, um, sometimes the tension that emerges out of very diverse people learning to function together as a body of Christ is not a bad tension. It is just, it's what it is. 
And, and, and it, was, it was just kind of coming into the church as people from a very background, religious and non-religious, Jewish and non-Jewish, Jewish and Greek, Gentile, men, and it began to create some tension. Now, an important part of our study of First Thessalonians over the next couple of months will center around noticing the way that their influence was felt within their culture. And something I'll promise you as, 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 as you get into the book of First Thessalonians, because I had never, in, in all the years I've been teaching, I've never taught First Thessalonians. Um, and as, as, I, as I jumped into it, I, I discovered it began to challenge some, some assumptions that I had about what the gospel looks like in culture and community. You see, as followers of Jesus, our influence must find expression within our modern-day community and cultural context. And, and to say the least, that can be confusing and challenging, living out our faith amid all the cultural conflicts that swirl around us right now. You think of all the stuff that swirls in our culture. And, and it creates a lot of challenging in, in, in how we not only interact with the culture around us, but how it impacts us in our community here as faith, as, as Grace Church. Because we begin to represent that diversity, and, and a lot of it begins finding its expression here. And, and what you're going to discover, what we're going to learn from 1 Thessalonians is very significant. And I'm going to press on something here, and we'll kind of play it out over the next couple of months. It's all about our posture and culture. And rather than assuming a posture against culture, or I, I could say it like this, as people fighting a war against our culture, we instead assume a kingdom posture as people of shalom within our culture who represent Jesus in our time and place. That's who we're to be. That in this moment, in our culture, in this time in history, we have been placed within the culture as representatives of Jesus. And how we handle that and what we do with that becomes critical in how our influence is experienced and felt, and, and we'll talk a lot about that. And, and as, as a community of believers here at Grace Church, our spiritual influence in our community, in Fayette County and beyond, will be enlarged and enhanced by our diversity. Our capacity to reach and welcome those who are different than us, who don't think like us, who don't look like us. The range and the reach of the gospel and the kingdom as it begins to cross all barrier becomes right to the core of influence. But the natural drift is towards sameness. And yet the drift of the gospel is towards this, this, this culturally rich diversity. And it's going to become more important for us over the next two decades. If only talking about race, for example, social scientists, and then when I'm reading a quote from someone who happens to be a believer, sometime in, 2000, in the 2040s, the United States will become a true ethnic plurality. During that decade, white Americans will no longer be the majority, but one of several considerably large ethnic groups. While white mainline evangelical churches are in decline today, 
racial ethnic churches are growing and predicted to increase even more. But here's, here's, the, here's the piece I want us to hear. As the dominant white culture in North America gives way to an increasingly pluralistic culture, imagine the impact that the church could have. Imagine the witness the church could offer. In a world of fear marked by divisive group politics, imagine the difference the church could make because we had already been out to the frontier and explored the world to come. See, that was where the Thessalonians were living. They were out ahead of all. It's going to be the place that we find ourselves more and more in the decades to come. Navigating is, is, is increasing amounts of diversity in our culture around us. Well, of course, as you would imagine, Paul's presence and influence in Thessalonica was, was very threatening to some. Verse 5. But other Jews were jealous. And so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. Now we know very little about Jason. Um, we surmise that Jesus had come to know Jesus at another place in time. Paul knew about Jason. Maybe he knew him. But he had arranged to stay with Jason when he came into Thessalonica. And Paul's presence with them put Jason at risk. The mob broke out, the riot started, verse, verse 6. But when they did not find them, they came to Jason's house, couldn't find Paul and Silas. They dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. Interesting, just Jason's proximity to Paul. It's not going to bring a cost. They're, they're defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. And, and this was a serious accusation that amounted to treason. You see, the Roman Pax Romana had named Caesar as savior and king. Those were the language it used. Caesar was savior. Caesar was king. And their world was full of powerful imagery that asserted that reality in all their public arc, in their statuary, columns in public buildings, coins. It was all designed to remind people they lived under Roman rule and Caesar was king. And advocating another king was a capital crime punishable by death. And the reality is Paul did proclaim Jesus as savior and king in the conflict of course, Jesus was a savior and king of a very different kingdom, to be sure. Unlike any secular uh, empire, government, or political system, but now their presence, Jesus as king, was putting them in a position of a very overt conflict with the political structures. And it would play out for decades. Now again, it's a so... It's such a good practice for us to take the scriptures and then to begin to look at them through our current cultural lens. And, and to you and I, we follow, worship, and proclaim Jesus is king. We would use that language. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our king. We're comfortable with the language, with, with, the, with the words of it. Um, our loyalty to Jesus 
creates a different kind of tension from those of us who live in a Western democratic form of government. And it's, it's something that we, we don't often think about. You know, what are Western Christians who have grown up in a context of a democratic environment, what do we do with kingdom theology and royal theology we find in the scriptures? How do we live within our, our unique democratic political environment and yet follow Jesus who we proclaim to be Lord and King over all? At the very least, it, it requires enormous intentionality to maintain our allegiance to Jesus within our ideals of democracy. But it also requires courage when the values of our democracy conflict with the values of Christ. <coughs> and the very character of a democratic environment begins to move in direction in the plurality of people and it begins to threaten and challenge our, our, our thinking, our way of life, and, and we, we will find our times where there's a tension and we, we're not sure we can be loyal to both. So what are the habits of the heart? And what are the core practices of Christians who are going to be loyal to Christ and His kingdom under His reign in our clinical context? We'll see some of what that looks like in 1 Thessalonians. This will be one of the things that we wrestle with, and you'll see it unpack as we move through 1 Thessalonians. Let's go on back to the story. Verse 8. When they heard this, when they heard that Paul wasn't with them, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They made, they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. See, Jason was now made responsible for seeing that Paul didn't return to Thessalonica and stir up any more trouble. In fact, Jason was required to post a personal security bond, ensuring that Paul would not come back. Paul had to leave the city quickly and not return. Verse 10, and as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. But removing Paul didn't quiet the conflict. Something bigger was beginning to happen. As their influence began to spread, so did the intensity of the conflict. And we're given a picture of things to come a few verses later. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned, at verse 13, that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowd and strengthening them. And so the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought to Athens and then left with instructions for Paul and Silas to join him as soon as possible. This becomes the context. And what we're going to see is a lot of the Thessalonians' faith was being forged and lived out during a time of intense pressure and persecution. It was the context that would forge the very nature of their faith. It wasn't, it's interesting, the influence was not taking place because the environment was peaceful. The influence was spreading because it wasn't peaceful. And they were right in the midst of this, and, and it was igniting something. But there was huge opposition to it. New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce 
name the question that likely led to Paul writing 1 Thessalonians. They were, they were, Paul had been such a profound influence and voice in their lives for this first year. Would these people with their newfound faith survive the pressures that were to be exerted on them or would they return to their former way of life? Would they survive? That was the question. Could they stand in the midst of the pressures and flourish? F.F. Bruce goes on to say, this newly planted church of Thessalonica was subjected to open persecution and more subtle forms of discouragement, and yet it maintained its faith and witness in a manner that filled the hearts of Paul and his companions with unbounded joy within their mind. They didn't just survive, they flourished. And as they flourished, the gospel flourished. And, and this thing just began to spread. Two large themes will emerge from our study of 1 Thessalonians. You're going to see two mega themes that, and I'm going to name them at the front, and we'll, we will, we'll, we'll look at them like a prison in different ways over the next number of weeks. But here's the first huge theme. It's the steadying influence of spiritual friends and leaders. The steadying influence of spiritual friends and leaders. To sustain spiritual vitality and influence, we need people who pursue us people who encourage us, people who disciple us. None of us can, can remain solid and steady without spiritual friends and leaders. None of us can remain solid in isolation. We need people in our lives. We need voices in our life. We need people who are pursuing us. And, and Paul is going to continue pursuing the Thessalonians. We're going to watch this play out in the relationship that Paul had with the Thessalonians. And we're going to watch it in the way the Thessalonians modeled and imitated and reproduced what Paul was giving to them to other people. So much of what was taking place wasn't theological at its core. It was relational. It was bound together with, with people who were committed to one another and committed uh, to the same cause. There's a second theme that we're going to discover, and that is the solid influence of our faithful presence in our community. Faithful presence is a beautiful way to capture how we're called to live in today's culture. The language may be new to some of you. I'm reading, a, I'm reading an excellent book right now by a, a Christian sociologist. The title is called To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in a Late Modern World. And here's how he talks about faithful presence. For Christian believers, the call to faithfulness is a call to live in fellowship and integrity with the person and witness of Jesus Christ. There is a timeless character to this call that evokes qualities of life and spirit that we are recognizable throughout history and across cultural boundaries. But this does not mean that faithfulness is a state of abstract piety floating above the multifaceted and compromising realities of daily life and actual situations. 
Faithfulness works itself out in the context of the complex social, political, economic, and cultural forces that prevail at a particular time and particular place. See, faithful presence is you and I. Faithful presence is Grace Church. Holding on to a tenacious commitment to Jesus Christ, representing Christ, and engaging today's culture with all of its unique challenges, risks, and threats. That we are present. And that we're in the midst of our cultural moment, this time, this place, this context. And this is where we live out our faith. And we're present in how we live. The Thessalonians lived out faithful presence in their time and place. As we're going to see, Paul just affirmed the fact that they did it well. We must live it out in our time and place. So why, why am I beginning the year of 1 Thessalonians? One of the questions I'm often asked when I begin a new study, um, three things drew me to this study at this time this place. First of all, I want to encourage those of you who are following Christ faithfully. And I look around the room, and so many of you, your spiritual life is solid. It's steady. It's who you are. Others look to you. Others in Grace Church look to you your solidness and your steadiness. Uh, you, you play a role in helping other people keep their lives anchored and steady. But for those of you who are living faithfully, there's a cost. And at times, it's easy to feel weary, discouraged, and disheartened. I want you to know, and I'm, I'm going to say as your pastor, your, your Paul, if you will, I want you to know that I am deeply grateful for your faithful presence within the Grace Church family. Deeply grateful for your faithful presence in our community here in the Southern Crescent. God is using your lives in good ways. Your courage and continued faithfulness are desperately needed. My hope for you is just to boost your morale and say keep going. Remain faithful. Hold on. Keep going. But there's a, a second group of people. I sense that some of you, and I've had conversations, all of these are coming out of conversations I have with people. Some of you feel demoralized by the church's loss of credibility in today's culture. It's a real thing, isn't it? Talking to people about Christ is one thing, but talking about the church is a whole different deal. And often the church has become the biggest liability and obstacle in talking to people about Jesus. And our, we can say it like this, our faithful presence, the church's faithful presence is withering beneath the weight of cultural pressures today. And frankly, it's wavering beneath the weight of our own lack of character. So it's not just an external reality, it's an internal reality. But we have a crisis of, of credibility today 
uh, in our influence in the culture. And, and some of you may feel demoralized by that. My hope for you is to boost your confidence and to reclaim our character, to live with courage. There's a third group of people, again, growing out of conversations. I also sense that some have drifted into a dangerous mediocrity in our spiritual lives. And I see signs of boredom, passivity, apathy, and indifference inside of you. I understand that. My hope for you is to reignite your vision for the life you're living today. And, and, and maybe help you move out of mediocrity and into a place of vitality again. Not unlike a, the church at Thessalonica, I believe Grace Church is the defining pivot point in our history. We're not a new or a young church. In fact, this spring we will celebrate our 50th anniversary as a church. Five decades. And there's, there's such a rich history and rich tradition and fabric of all the stories of those decades that surround Grace Church. We've experienced in recent years significant transition of people. Some of that is just life and all kinds of things, but we've transitioned a lot. And, and I've shared with some of you that I think Grace Church is in what I call a generational transition. Not in terms of age. This is not about young and old. But a generational transition from one generation who founded and guided Grace faithfully for almost five decades to a new generation those of us sitting in this room. See, we now have the opportunity of carrying on their faithful presence in the decades to come. That's the pivot point. In some ways, it's as if we are a new church. We're certainly a different church. And so the questions before us as we begin the study of 1 Thessalonians are two. Will we, will we be the solid and steady examples and encouragers for one another in this time that we live? Will we provide this for each other? Can we look around the room and over time say, I am solid and steady because of Will we provide that to each other? And the second question is, will we be that faithful presence for Christ in our current cultural moment? Will our presence in Fayette County represent Christ well? And will that influence expand? That's the challenge.
for us. And we'll follow Paul in the next moments. Join me in prayer. Father, this, this wonderful letter is, is not just a stale lesson in history. As Isaac said earlier, no better way for us to begin the year, even with the contest of a talk like this morning, than by coming to the Lord's table. Which, for us, gives us a very visible reminder of what lies at the center and the core of who we are. We're followers of Jesus. And what draws us together in all of our uniqueness and all of our diversity is what Jesus has done for us in the cross. And the life that Jesus makes available through his life, his death, and his resurrection, his ongoing presence with us today. That we can celebrate the forgiveness we enjoy, we celebrate the, the oneness that we enjoy because of Jesus. And so as we come to the table, it's, it's really a, an affirmation, not just of what we believe, it's an affirmation of who we are. It's an affirmation of who we desire to be in this time and this place. That we are those people who are going to faithfully follow and grow and mature and represent Jesus. And so as you come, come with those thoughts in mind. And we, we ask you to come because we, we think the movement here is just a simple gesture of your participation in this process. And so you'll come down the center aisles and you'll kind of peel around to the outsides. And we'll have people up here serving you. Uh, for those of you who have gluten allergies or intolerances, you'll notice in each tray there's four little cups that have a gluten-free piece of bread in them for you. The others are not. And we'll 